So, hi, Victor. Um, your, your last name is Orozco, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's my last name. Actually, pretty pretty common in my country, but I think it's not so common in in the world besides Spain and and Colombia. I think that's where it is a common last name. <laughs> okay, so um, but was pronounced okay, right? Yeah, sure. Perfect. What was your first computer? Well, I think that my first computer was actually a Cydex four eighty six. I guess uh, you know. Uh, I have like this particular situation when I was living with my parents and they live far, far away in the country. Uh, they are probably nearer to Mexico than to the actual capital city of Guatemala. But for my father's work, because he was an academic and also an engineer, well, totally different engineering area because he's from earth sciences, uh, he like bought this computer, this Irix, but he actually couldn't do anything with it because he wasn't capable of using Windows or that. But, uh, you know, mm -hmm. I think I've been lucky with that computer because that opened my, my mind in order to do software development. <laughs> okay, but how it opened? So you you started programming right away or what was your... What is your know the story with the computer? And Cyrix was like the cheaper no, in Intel, right? So Cyrix was like the uh, the they were at the beginning. I remember there were different uh, CPUs which were uh, um, competitors to Intel, right? Yeah, the thing with Cyrix, I guess that they were like the third option. I think that actually they sold the patents for the x86 for to be a chipset. So I'm not sure if they are creating these chips. But at the time, uh, you know, Guatemala, my country, uh, sometimes lags behind in the technology area and the computers weren't so popular as they are now. So Cyrix was everywhere hitting the country because yeah, as, just, as you said, it was the Intel clone slash ch cheapest option. And that was like two or three years before the Pentium, I guess, because when Pentium came out to the market, Cyrix was really out. <laughs> yeah, I remember Cyrix and then another one, another CPU, which was uh, uh, has came with uh, no lower uh, tech rate, but uh, uh, but was um, supposed to be more powerful than Intel. I have to think about this. Um, so there were other CPUs, but interesting. So, but what you did with the computer? Okay. Well, the thing is that uh, I recall that that computer had like a piracy copy of Windows 3.11 okay. because piracy of Windows was a thing in that days. But the thing is, uh, here in Guatemala, we have like this homebrew scene in which uh, people created companies in order to build computers and they tended to, to bundle software with uh, DOS support, mostly games. Mm -hmm. And I recall that uh, here in Guatemala, uh, we have like this game, it was named Prehistoric 2. It wasn't so popular like Mario or, or Dangerous Dave, but I think that one person was, uh, you know, was the responsible of copying that game to mm -hmm. any uh, computers academy here in the country. And that game was everywhere. So I recall that my first contact with the computer was actually because my father was like trying to do something with the computer and he found like this game with the... Mm -hmm. A little caveman you know, <laughs> requesting for food for his family. And actually, I tried to play that game once a year because it remembers me my beginning is the computer. But at the beginning, it was only I used it for playing Prehistoric 2. But beyond that, I became like into this 
there was gaming scene, the little scene here in Guatemala, in which we exchanged floppy disks with copies of Doom mm -hmm. and Dangerous Dave. I recall having like three or four Dangerous Dave on my computer. And it was actually quite good because, you know, my father have like this culture of not buying consoles for his kids. So I didn't grow up with a Nintendo or Sega or something like mm -hmm. that. So that motivated me in order to look for more games in my computer. And in the end, it was actually a good decision because, uh, you know, as many people probably start in software development, I started to think, how do you create your games? Or how, how do you mod your games? Mm -hmm. So I remember that my first line of code was actually doing some mods for Prehistoric 2. I wasn't so sure that that was programming at that time because I basically copied a little bit of patches and, you know, I disassembled the program because I, I was too, too young when I was doing that. But I probably, I think that that was the first time I did something with, with software development. But if you disassemble a program, I mean, uh, and, and you knew what to do, this is like crazy, right? So, I mean, how you dis disassemble the program and then how you knew what to do then, right? Well, the thing is that uh, I actually had uh, an early contact with the internet because my father worked with, uh, you know, uh, the thing is with international cooperation because he was in, uh, you know, personal development. It was like these international programs in which he received help and most of the, the international organizations were actually very proactive in motivating the, the development of the country. And one of these actions that actually, I think, changed my life was that they gave to my father this course of what is Internet. Uh, so mm -hmm. I think that the Internet started in Guatemala commercially in 1998, 1990, okay. I think. Uh, and I, wa I was there. So actually, I did a lot of modding by consulting guides that were, were written like five or six years ago. So, so I was like into trying to do something to change a program, uh, learning English in order to understand how to hack a program. And I think that was uh, a key part of my life in which I get into the, this uh, computer gaming mode. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is great because, you know, you were forced to learn English and uh, then you were forced, you know, to learn not to program, to use the computer, I would say, right? To disassemble stuff, you know, to understand what, what programming means. And and you were motivated just to change the game. So this was your motivation. You wanted to change the game, right? Yeah, that was basically it. Because, you know, this game, Prehistoric 2, had like this uh, smart coding in which they like read a particular code from the BIOS. So when you have like these passcodes in order to go to different levels, this was unique depending on the codes inside your BIOS. So no computer was no computer code was equal to another. So I actually um, I actually did this modeling in order to understand what uh, what were the actual codes for the next and next levels because okay. you know this prehistoric two game is actually pretty hard. But in the end, I I made it to the final uh, by by seeing these cheats into this source code. But it was it's it is quite fun, you know, because that's why I I, am, I started to. To do some hacking on the, uh, on the, the computer game games. Prehistoric, right? Prehistoric? Yeah. Uh, I think it's French. The, I think that the game is French, but it's not so popular besides, you know, Latin America. I guess, I don't know why, but it is pretty popular in Latin America, especially for people studying something in computers between uh, 98 and 99. I would check it out. This made, made me curious. And I also never heard about uh, Dangerous Dave. So it's also a game, right? Dangerous Dave, you said? 
Yeah, that's also, yeah. Yeah, that's actually a set of games that the creators of Doom made before the actual creation of Doom and Quake. So it's like the beginnings of the, you know, uh, gaming software in the in, in computers because, you know, we have like this eternal fight between consoles and uh, PC gaming, but PC gaming was, I think, after the, the consoles gaming, I guess. Uh, I didn't live all these years in that scene, but... Uh, I, from my perspective, the PC gaming was actually inspired for the things that Nintendo and Sega did in, at the time. So mm -hmm. I've read like this biography of Romero and John Carmack when they tell how they wanted to bring Mario to, to the PC gaming. But actually Nintendo said, well, we are not interested in PC gaming. So they created Dangerous Dave. That's actually a really good game. And actually... I recommend that everyone should play Dangerous Day because you see it. Okay, I will check it out. Never great games for PC gaming. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, very good. So, and then you started to program, or what was the, hist the story then? So you managed, you know, to to read the BIOS, which is not trivial, I would say. What happened then? Yeah, it it wasn't trivial. So, in one point of my life, uh, at that gaming modding scene, I decided that I wanted to create games. I actually never programming a game entirely. I, I've just done hacking like in Minecraft lately. But the thing is, uh, I wanted to know how things work. So I spoke with my father. And the thing is that we at Guatemala, we didn't have too many options in order to learn how to use a computer. So uh, I remember that uh, I went to a, a vacations course. It, uh, it was a thing here in Guatemala when you have two, three months of vacations between different years. Mm -hmm. And I went to a software training that in the end it was like training how to use Windows. But the final part of that how to use Windows course actually covered how to develop software in FoxPro. Wow. You know, FoxPro was really yeah. popular at yeah. that time because I think that was the, the toolkit in order to develop uh, enterprise applications here in Guatemala. And people was interested in learning FoxPro. So at the end of the course, in order to attract more students to, for the next modules, they will say, well, this is how you program a computer. And this is FoxPro. And in FoxPro, you could, you could create this, uh, you know, mm -hmm. interfaces. Mm -hmm. You could save the data and you could copy the, the data files from FoxPro. So I actually wrote my first program in FoxPro. I wasn't so sure about programming because, you know, the 4 gl thing or this kind of generation of language is pretty different from the actual mm -hmm. uh, programming in other languages like Java, C++. But actually, I started first with FoxPro. And the next year, I actually took the second course in order to program in, in Pascal. Uh, I really enjoyed the, the, the experience in Pascal. I recall many good books in Pascal. And if Pascal was a thing today, I would recommend to start to software development in Pascal because it's actually pretty easy to pick. I you know I think Pascal was the the Python of that era because everybody was trying to understand a little bit of code with with Pascal. At least yeah, was, yeah. That first was my Pascal experience. and then Delphi. This is this is was the the path, right? So um, yeah, also uh, yeah. at one point of time I used Pascal because I've, and, and there was a Turbo Pascal, you know, and I like you know the Turbo name in the Pascal, so I was really interested. In what it is, I was... Uh... Yeah, I, I recall that people have like this Turbo Pascal thing and Borland Pascal. I never get the difference between these two. I know there is a difference, but for me, I think it was Turbo Pascal, actually. Yeah, so that's interesting. And the course was at the university or where was it? 
You know, the I think that the IT sector in Guatemala, it actually started with boot camps. You know, boot camps are a thing nowadays in which you go in order to receive training. Uh, it doesn't matter if you have college or something. But the thing with Guatemala is that we have like this heavy influence from IBM because IBM, you know, we are a country near to the United States. So mm -hmm. IBM had like this whole influence over Mexico and Central America. And IBM did a lot of investment for to dominate the Central American market. And, uh, you know, software engineering degrees or computer science degrees in, in the colleges were actually, I think. So the first software developers here in Guatemala were actually practitioners, people that had like this experience in electronics or they were like starting to do math or physics and they went to IBM bootcamps. And after that, uh, that boosted a market all over the country in which these people that received training from IBM or other companies, but mostly IBM, they created like these uh, computing academies. Huh. It was like they published in the newspapers, oh, come here, uh, come mm -hmm. to learn the, the profession of the future. Mm -hmm. Colleges were actually just creating the degrees, but mm -hmm. I went to one of these bootcamps. Uh, I was pretty young, actually, and I think that my father had like this perception that I will go into computers one year or another. So he told me, okay, let's pay another course. And I actually received my first software development course when I was, I think, like 12, 13, maybe. So oh. it was pretty, I was the youngest guy in there. I actually recall that some engineers, electronic engineers were also receiving that course. And I was the kid in there because I was learning. It was actually... Really fun, you know, because uh, being the kids in this kind of area in which you only have professionals, it gave you some advantages because people say, oh, here is the kid. And this kid is learning how to software, how to do software development. So it was quite fun. Yeah. I actually recall that in learning with a lot of people and professionals. And this contact with the professionals inspired me to follow up in the, in the engineering area because the, in there I discovered that engineering was a thing. And computer sciences training and degrees in the universities were were starting to to become popular, you know. Mm -hmm. And you enjoyed, you know, the process of programming, or you just knew that is something bigger and uh, is good for you for the future, or you just uh, really enjoyed, you know, programming. No, you know, the thing is, I really enjoyed the the programming area because. Uh, uh, I recall that when I wrote my first my first program in Pascal. Uh, when you wrote software in Pascal, it was like actually trying to speak in English. Uh, you know, Pascal had this thing in which you have a low tooth verbosity, but at that at that time, uh, it was like trying to speak to the computer. I actually mm -hmm. interpreted that at that age that I was able to tell the computer what to do, mm -hmm. and that felt really powerful. Man, so when I did my first programs, I started to copy it on the floppy disk, and uh, you know. Things that nobody's are like, well, that makes sense. When I did my first program at the Computing Academy, I came to my house with a disk, a floppy disk, and I put that in my computer and it compiled and wrong again. It was okay. No, I can create programs. I could actually speak with the computers. This is powerful. And that, uh, that basically was how I started in software development. Yeah. But because back then, uh, the computers were like uh, newer, right? They were exciting stuff, new, and uh, felt somehow powerful. And if you manage, you know, to control them, this was a great feeling. This also I remember because, you know, 
first, if there was a computer, it was an expensive thing, which was uh, untouchable. So it was something, I know, this, only smart people can use it. This was my perception. And then if you manage, you know, to, to program that, it was a nice feeling, actually. Okay, I'm, I'm able to, you know, to, 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 to speak to the, to the machine, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, and then the next, uh, the, uh, next workshop was about FoxPro. So you were advanced programmer already with Turbo Pascal, right? There was a FoxPro and Turbo Pascal. What happened then? Well, uh, you know, the thing with this kind of bootcamp academies is that they created like this whole market of computers technicians. So in the beginning, I I was in the belief that I will become eventually to a computer technician. I will have like my computers workshop in which I will, you know, mm-hmm. buy and sell some parts. And that was my initial dream. But the thing is that uh, when I started in this area, uh, here in Guatemala, we have like this uh, division between middle middle high school, in which you could actually do the regular high school programs, like in the U.S., in which they receive basically all of the sciences uh, available in order to prepare you for the college. And you have technical careers in which you go to high school in order to pursue a profession. And my profession, or at least what I think it was my the, my profession at that time, I went to technical school in order to learn how to fix and repair computers. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that uh, that put me in a position in which I was starting to understand my context because, uh, you know, in many ways, I have like this privilege in, to have uh, early contact with computing because I'm, when I went to this me, technical middle high school, let's name it like that, uh, most of the people that went into the program actually didn't have a computer at their homes. So they went to learn how to use computers first. The second year, we learned how to actually build a PC, how to select the parts. It was a whole different era because Windows Millennium was a thing. Windows XP was mm-hmm. just released. And when I was to the following year, uh, they say, well, we are starting the advanced level. So we are going to do software development. And we were learning basic, actually. So my third language was basic. Mm-hmm. And the final language where I, what I learned at that school, it was C++. Uh, I more recognize that my professors weren't so good at it because, you know, C++ is a whole different level. Yeah. Uh, they didn't knew that. So they were, they told us, well, C++ is a thing. You sort of learn C++. Mm-hmm. But when we ask, what is a pointer? How do you do this? The reference of the pointer, what are sign it and to sign it variables? Yeah. <laughs> it was like everybody was exploiting their minds. But I think that that course in particular focused on, on basic because basic had like this whole market of, of Central America. I think that visual basic at least is still pretty popular. There is a lot of software actually growing mm-hmm. in, in visual basic and it will remain there in basic. So. That's where I I was supposed to follow software development. And my mindset at that time was, well, Microsoft is the leader of the world. I need to learn Microsoft tools. So mm-hmm. I think Microsoft.net was just released also. And I had like this mindset, I need to go to college in order to learn Microsoft.net okay. uh, tools, which nowadays is pretty, you know, it's pretty ironic, but that was my, my mindset at the time. Why ironic? I mean, this is not that bad, right? With uh, .NET and C Sharp, you could uh, switch easily to Java if you if you wanted. So it would be not, not a big problem, right? Yeah, you know, the thing is that my professor didn't know about C Sharp. They knew that C Sharp was a thing, but uh, Visual Basic was the king. It's like, we know that it exists, but it sounds okay. like 
only the US use C sharp. We use basic. Okay. And you have to learn basic. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But uh, I think this uh, Visual Basic uh, .NET was very similar to C sharp, right? So, I mean, the dot. Well, actually, .NET was a thing, but uh, we learned in Visual Basic 6, I guess that was the okay. last version before the .NET era. Okay. So, uh, we were like Visual Basic 6 developers. And you started to study computer science to learn .NET, right? Yeah, yeah. The thing is that uh, nowhere this is pretty different. But uh, you know, in Guatemala, not so many people goes to college. I think mm -hmm. like between two to three percent of the people able to do to be in the edge to have the previous degree actually goes to college. So uh, like we don't have like a strong uh, mathematics and physics and this uh, kind of science backgrounds in the middle school because. Not everybody is going to engineering classes. Mm -hmm. And my father, uh, I spoke with my father when I, he said, well, if you want to pursue software engineering, uh, I don't know a thing about it because that's a whole different area for me. I could speak with people that tell, could tell you about the experience, where to look for uh, the, like, how to obtain this degree. And I was 16. Yeah, I, I recall I was 16 when I have to travel to the capital city of Guatemala. So I left my home at 16 in order to pursue a computer science degree. Uh, you know, uh, here in Guatemala, we had this thing that we, you could skip uh, some levels of uh, formal education if you have the, the capacity. I skipped to two years, actually. Wow. So when I was 16, I, I went to live alone to, to attend college. And I have like this opportunity in order to go to public college that uh, in Guatemala, not so many people goes to college, but if you make it to the public university, you basically pay like nine to 10 euros per, per year. So it, it is pretty cheap. If you actually go into it. Okay. And that's how I started in, in, in computer science. So, so you were good at school. Yeah, I was, I think I was good at school because uh, I wasn't good at sports, I guess. <laughs> so I had to, to like this particular interest in games, in software development, and I became good at school. So that's why, uh, despite being from a remote region here in Guatemala, I actually make it and made the cut for the for the engineering program here in Guatemala. So you learned a lot in at school, or just you were just good without learning. No, you know, I actually learned a lot because of my mom, because my mom was a public teacher. So oh, he, okay. he, she was a teacher and she spends a lot of time uh, teaching us how to read, how to do complex mathematics. So I think it was a thing that my mom did to me because she, she was like this mindset. My mom actually never went to, uh, to college mm -hmm. and she said, I I probably won't go to college anytime in my life, but I want my kids to go. So I'll do my best uh, in order to make them good in, in mathematics and, and whatever I I suppose they they have to learn in, in university. Uh, great. So uh, so this was uh, you, you could you know you save two years of your life or save. Or yeah, <laughs> it depends, right? Yeah, to the professors actually, I think I saved two years for them too. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And and you enjoyed the college? You were the youngest again, well, the maybe. Thing, yeah, I was the youngest again in college. Uh, you know, the thing with college is that uh, you have like these people coming all over the, the Guatemala and actually some other countries here in Central America, because despite being a public college, uh, I'm not sure if you are into public colleges in 
Latin America, but public colleges in Latin America tend to have this reputation or of being good for sciences, but actually very political focused. So it was a interesting experience at the beginning because you have like these classes about Guatemalan history, okay. about the Cold War. <laughs> it okay. was, it is a particular situation here in the public colleges in Latin America. I've seen the same pattern in Brazil. I've seen the same pattern in Colombia for at mm -hmm. least. But uh, what I actually enjoyed in college, uh, it was like this opportunity to meet other people really interested in computer science. Mm -hmm. Because when I was in high school, you know, people wanted to learn a little bit in order to get a job. But uh, I think that my experience in college was actually pretty much uh, pretty different because people was actually doing a thing in order to learn how to develop software. But uh, the first year was pretty difficult for me because, uh, as I said, most of the people were in the region where I lived had like this whole different level in computer science. So when I went to the degree, it actually was pretty hard to me because I didn't have enough knowledge of mathematics uh, mm -hmm. uh, and software development in order to do it for, uh, at least good for the first year. So the first year was actually pretty tough for me. Mm -hmm. And I have to study a lot in order to do, to make my way in and actually survive to the computer science program. <laughs> yeah, which is normal. Uh, even even uh, during my study was tough, you know, the first year is always hard in computer science because lots of, you know, the foundation and stuff is not trivial. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's actually, uh, you know, when you see, when you remember that years, I actually recall uh, having difficulties with this kind of actually easy things to do in mathematics. Because when you start to learn and study more and more mathematics courses, uh, you actually see, well, that, that was pretty easy, but I I didn't have enough knowledge to do it. But in the end, it, it all worked for me. <laughs> yeah, uh, f for me, uh, in my study, the uh, math professor said the first day, like, uh, we will do everything crazy fast, but from the beginning. And, and I said, okay, this is my opportunity from the beginning. So, I mean, uh, um, if it's really true, so I can do it, right? And and then I uh, recently found my, you know, the scripts from math scripts. And they were actually, this was crazy stuff we did. I, I read about super planes or whatever it is. I, I mean, this was actually crazy stuff we did back then. But uh, it, it, for me, it was fun. The first time at the university. Before then, it was a little bit boring. But at the oh, university, I was... Uh, University of Applied Applied Science, so it was not a real university. It's more like a pragmatic university. So in Germany, we have two two parts or two two categories of university. You know, the the real university, which is more theoretical, and the University of Applied Science, which is more uh, more about programming. I would say, but it was fun. And um, where you studied? In which city? Well, uh, I started, uh, my actual city is named San Pedro. Most of the cities here in Guatemala and other Latin American countries are actually named in similar ways, San Pedro, San Marcos, which means Saint something, same okay. Saint other thing. We have a lot of Saint yeah. cities. And I started in that city, but uh, I did college entirely in Guatemala City because we are Guatemala not very city, creative right? with names, I guess, mm -hmm. because the country is Guatemala. The region is actually the Guatemala region, and the city is Guatemala City. So I am in Guatemala, Guatemala, Guatemala. Yeah, very good. It so, works. Uh, uh, <laughs> Gu Guatemala power of three, right? So yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and uh, you started programming immediately at the university, or was it like more theoretical stuff? And 
Now, you know, the thing that with the public universities here in Guatemala is that actually they don't have like this enough capacity to receive so much students. And uh, to be fair, there are so many students that start like these engineering programs, but I think that just 20 to 30% survive to the first year. So the first year is mostly focused on mathematics, uh, history classes, uh, physics, uh, you know, these complementary areas in order to, you know, prepare you for the things to come. But actually, I think they also work as unintentional filters in which mm -hmm. people just say, well, this is not for me. I, I want to seek for other major. But the first year was actually focused mostly on mathematics. That was the okay. main focus at and what was the first programming was language you learned at the university? Okay, the thing is, uh, you know, do you remember when I said that IBM has this yeah. huge influence in Guatemala? Okay, the thing is that, that the industry as a whole evolved a lot in Guatemala. But uh, my impression, that's quite my impression, is that Microsoft did a lot of investments too. So I think like between 2000 to 2004, 2005, uh, there was a switch in the ecosystem in which many of the universities and colleges decided, well, we need to teach Microsoft technology. Mm -hmm. So this, I think that the differential factor in my college is that one of the actual directors of the computer science program went to do his master's at Carnegie Mellon. So he lived in the U.S. for two, three years, I, I remember. And when he came back to Guatemala, he said, well, I think we need to change, guys, because I met this technology in Carnage Mellon, and this technology was Java. Mm -hmm. So he decided and he spoke with the IBM representatives and to say, what do you think about Java? Mm -hmm. And IBM said, well, Java is the present man. And many banking systems here in Guatemala were actually being rewritten in Java. Mm -hmm. But most of the people that was working in Java actually never met Java in college. So I came into university in this transition because he came back to Guatemala like in 2002, 2003. Mm -hmm. And I started college in 2005. So I was part of this experiment slash, uh, you know, modernization of the, mm -hmm. the syllabus. And when he decided that Java will be the programming language for the mm -hmm. people, he actually have like this mindset that uh, one day Guatemala will be a nearshore software provider for the U.S. That actually became true because the main industry in Guatemala nowadays is to provide software external external services to to U.S. companies. Mm -hmm. And one man decision, I think. I recognize that my whole career in software development from that point to, to nowadays, it was his decision because he said, we need to teach Java to these guys because it doesn't matter if you, after that, go to Guatemala industry that is basically Visual Basic and possibly C Sharp in the future. If they learn Java, they will actually be able to pick any software development language, which actually became true because many of the professionals that studied in that era, uh, many of us still remain in Java for, for that year, <laughs> from that year. In, so, so you started with Java at the university, actually. So you wanted to learn .NET, yeah. and instead you learned Java. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so you I, started with Java 5. Uh, yeah, I started with Java 5, actually. So and the, the, the it was is, already great, you know, with annotations and everything. So it was like more yeah. than Java. 
Yeah, the thing is that uh, we don't have, uh, you know, the Guatemalan IT industry don't have like this experience in Java because at the time uh, English wasn't a thing in colleges because mm -hmm. we were like very, very behind if compared to other countries in order to speak in English. So most of the literature of that, I recall the, the Details book, which is pretty, pretty famous, I guess. I recall that the only translation for the details book, which was the official book to learn Java at college, it was Java one, Java four, 1.4. Mm -hmm. So I started actually with Java 1.4. And after that, uh, mostly by, you know, a different decision, I did the jump to Java five, but the official Java was actually Java four in a Java five era. Kind of the situation is happening with Java eight, Java 11, Java 17. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> That's who was happening. the guy again who, who decided to, that the university should switch to Java? Was it like, you know, the, the head of the university or who was it? Well, he was the head of the computer science program. Oh, but the thing is science. that, yeah, the thing is with uh, software in engineering in Guatemala, if compared to other engineering areas like construction, electrics and whatever, it is, nowadays it still is a, uh, is a small section of the mm -hmm. of the engineering area because we don't have like a computer science program in a science faculty. We have a computer science program in engineering programs. So mm -hmm. it, it it is mostly focused on on computer science for software engineering. And when he came back, he basically had like this clean canvas in which he could actually he had all the power to decide this will be the next thing that people will be learning here in Guatemala. And he actually uh, actually, what, what I recall at college at that level is that the people that already had companies here in Guatemala, they think uh, they were thinking at the time that Java wasn't a good decision because they said, well, man, how, why are you spending the time of the student doing Java if everything in Guatemala it is, is, is .NET, basically? Mm -hmm. Would he say, well, no, it is .NET, but if we want to be competitive and we, if we dream with an industry in which Guatemala could be a provider for the U.S., we have to create this diversification because Linux is being a thing too, because Linux wasn't a thing at that era too. And so he gave us like the freedom, but mostly, you know, the, the resources to learn Java, because at the same time, like he had like this vision in which uh, he did like contacts from the with the embassy of india and he told hey we are doing this in the computer science program we are actually trying to impact the whole industry uh, do you have how to, do you have any idea how could you help us because india like has this whole offshoring outsourcing mm -hmm. culture mm -hmm. and we want to do that in guatemala so they actually attended the request and they said we could actually contact with some, uh, you know, enterprises with some companies in India to see if we could do together something with the country. And I recall that in 2006, uh, Tata Consulting Services, TCS, mm -hmm. uh, actually signed a collaboration agreement with my university. And okay. they said, well, TCS uses Java. And we also have like this idea that we are, we are starting operations in Mexico that is mm -hmm. pretty close to Guatemala. Mm -hmm. And we think that we will be needing in the future software developers that are capable of doing things besides .NET. So we are actually paying a bootcamp program here inside the university. And you actually had like this option to learn Java from people that was actually pretty 
pretty capable of Java because I didn't learn Java with my college professor. I learned Java with this uh, with these guys from TCS, and that's actually that's also a game changer in my career because in that bootcamp in particular, I remember in learning all of the contents from the Java certification. Mm -hmm. I actually became Java certified when I was in college. Which is and also I hard. Learned the the first to, certification yeah, program was awesome. really, really hard. What I remember was the Sun Certified Java program. I don't know whether you had the opportunity to, to pass that, but um, I did the very early certs. And back then, it was not even, you know, there was multiple choice. But in my course, um, you had no idea how many of the answers are right. You know, whether they are three yeah. of five or one or two. So it was actually pretty challenging, this entire certification. No, the thing is, besides challenging, it was expensive, you know, because yeah. I remember that uh, certification test here in Guatemala was like three or four times the minimum, the minimum salary at the time. So it was pretty expensive. Mm -hmm. And as a student, I wouldn't be able to pay it. But this program had like this training. Well, we could put the trainers And they also contacted some microsystems at the time. And some said, we could actually do it. And they gave us for free the certification tests. And most great. of the people that, mm -hmm. yeah, it was actually a pretty huge opportunity because at the time I wasn't aware how difficult it was and how meaningful will, will it be in my first job. Because when I went to my first job, I actually didn't have like this test of Java because I was certified. and. Java wasn't a thing in Guatemala. So when I say, well, I have a Java certification, by who? Well, I am certified by some microsystems. I have 21 years and I am also Java certified. So I got my first uh, job just in the first interview. But at the time, I, I wasn't aware how powerful these kind of things could be in your first job. Nowadays, yeah. I'm not doing so much certifications, but at the time, it was it was a game changer. So what was your first serious Java program, regardless whether it was commercial or leisure one? So what what your first prog program you've wrote in Java? Well, the thing is, uh, when I was in college, uh, the free software movement was starting in Guatemala. And... Uh, as I said, uh, the college had like this freedom of do whatever you think in whatever language. Uh, if you learn how to do software, we don't we don't care actually mm -hmm. uh, which programming language do, are you proficient. Mm -hmm. So the free software movement in Guatemala, I could actually relate the software movement uh, in my country with the software user groups, uh, the Linux user groups in my university. So when we started the Linux user group at my university, uh, we have like these first, first events. It was pretty mature. We have like this huge festival in, in Guatemala that is actually a Latin American festival of free software mm -hmm. in which you basically go with your computer and people like me installed a copy of Linux. Uh, mm -hmm. It was a thing back then. Mm -hmm. So when I went into the, this Linux user group, I received a lot of information besides the information I was receiving at college because the Linux user groups were, were actually conformed by professionals, students, people from other degrees, especially mathematics and physics. And I met there my first job opportunity because I was explaining how to do things with NetBeans uh, rich client platform oh. because I was interested in doing desktop software development. And I was saying, well, 
if you want to do things with Swing, you should check out NetBeans RCP mm -hmm. because you could do a lot of things and your mm -hmm. programs will be like just like NetBeans. Mm -hmm. And the my actual opportunity came from my first presentation, and they told me, "Do you do you actually learn Java?" Yes, I do it. So I went to work with I recall my, my first serious program was a database for da data for human rights, mm -hmm. and it was. It was created with struts. So my first Java framework, which I actually recall being actually pretty good, was struts. Struts was a thing back then. <laughs> Why you started with NetBeans and not uh, Visual Edge for Java or something or Eclipse from IBM? So this is interesting. Part. Well, I well the thing is with NetBeans is that when I was at college, uh, Song had like this huge movement on we are becoming a software services company. And we are like uh, pushing a lot MySQL. We are pushing a lot free Java. Free Java wasn't a thing when I started, but in the middle of the college, Java became free. And so Microsystem had like these open source university meetups in which you, re you registered yourself or a group in your college. And they actually sent uh, DVDs with software because mm -hmm. internet access uh, was mm -hmm. a little bit difficult at that yeah. time. So I recall receiving a DVD with NetBeans. It had my SQL, Solaris. So when I saw NetBeans, because the official IDE for my college was actually JCreator, I'm not sure if that's a thing nowadays, but that was yeah. the official IDE. Yeah. So when I saw NetBeans, and it was NetBeans is free software, and I was able to run it on Linux, it was huge for me because I'd say, well, this is a whole different level of software development. I remember that I struggled with the, the RAM memory in my computer at that time. But uh, when I saw NetBeans, I think, well, this this will be the future in, in Java software development. So that's why I, I started with NetBeans and NetBeans RCP. Okay. So you started, so you knew Java and then per accident, you, you found the DVD and installed NetBeans and you like NetBeans, right? So this was the path to NetBeans. I don't know, many of the things that happened at that time were actually by accident because it was like, hey, do you have like this thing? I recall that uh, we have like this student, in exchange student from Panama, and he came with a CD with Gentoo Linux. And mm -hmm. he said, Gentoo Linux is the future, but you have to compile everything. And it was like this fun slash geeky activity in which we went, uh, you know, a night or two in order to hack. Uh, or try to do our best in order to yeah. do our first, first open source contribution. And that's that's when we like got these whole resources in order to do Java development, in my case, NetBeans. And, and then you became uh, interested in the UI user interface. And then, uh, of course, NetBeans was very capable. There was the Matisse visual editor, so you could just uh, drag and drop the UI, I guess, right? And uh, also Eclipse, yeah. R uh, Eclipse NetBeans RCP. And so you, you deliver a talk. And then you got a job with Struts. So you used the NetBeans to program Struts apps, right? Yeah, that was my first job. It was and actually what was a the backend server? Job. Was it Tomcat or what was it? Or Glassfish? It was actually a Sun Java application server. Sun Java application server. This is actually great because this was the predecessor of Glassfish. So there was this Sun, yeah. Sun <laughs> Java application server and then Glassfish came out. Now, interesting. So, um, yeah, but this was already pretty late for Sun Glassfish application server. You said 2005, 2006, so there was Glassfish already around, I think, right? Yeah, it was, Glassfish was actually a thing, but, uh, you know, Java was starting in my country at that years. So, yeah. like, if you work for IBM or consulting for IBM, 
you will be probably using IBM technology. Yeah. But besides IBM supported companies, Java wasn't a thing. So the first, you know, the groundbreaking companies started with the resources that they had available in Spanish. And most of the Spanish resources were actually lagging behind us, as you say. So that's why many companies started with some Java application server when Gulasvis was a thing. <laughs> oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it was identical to some Java server, but open sourced. Um, so... What is the next project then? I mean, the stresses are already huge. So you had to learn to know web and you have to know Java and database. So you had to learn uh, to know a lot to, to, to be you know, effective with struts, right? Yeah, the thing is that uh, I must recognize that the bootcamp from TCS did a lot of difference in my career because in that bootcamp, I spent basically two years besides the computer science degree. So I had to do my extra in order to do my computer science assignments, my regular courses to my degree. And I, you know, I recall that uh, we have like this crazy schedule at college in which you, reci you receive classes between 7 a.m. to 11 a.m. and after that 7 p.m. to 9, 10 p.m. So we have like this gap between these two schedules and the TCS program was, well, if you want to receive these courses, you have to stay here in college. You have to do whatever you have to do in order to stay here in college. Uh, you won't receive any points of your degree. This is for free and you have to speak in English. So, you know, like this bootcamp attracted a lot of people, like probably between four to five thousand people, I guess. But in the end, uh, we, we were just like, you know, 15 students at most. Okay. So from the investment point of view, I think it was a failure. Uh, it was a failure because the program had like this intention of create a lot of opportunities for a lot of people. But when the instructor started to speak in English, all the people was, well, man, this is not for me because English is very difficult, especially if you come from a different background, let's say not so privileged background here in Guatemala. But, uh, you know, that's where the games made in handy because I actually learned English in order to understand games. So <laughs> very good. I, my English is not the best, that's very but good. I actually had, to, mm -hmm. but I actually had like this enough level in order to do the bootcamps. So I did the bootcamps and, you know, an interesting fact is that Central America has just three Java champions. Two of the Java champions were actually in that bootcamp. So I knew the other Java champion from Guatemala. He's Caesar. I met him at that at that bootcamp. So we started together to to do Java development in there. Ah, Caesar, whose uh, last name? Caesar Hernandez. I think he works still for Tommy Tribe. Ah, okay. Uh, interesting. He's in. He's at the Null Pointers band. <laughs> ah, Null no, Pointers band. Okay. Um, but you had yeah. no time to play instruments, of course, you know, with your background, so it was absolutely no time. <laughs> what was the next application? <laughs> so the first was Struts. What was the next one? Well, the thing is that this project had like this, uh, it was a consulting so, uh, consultancy, actually. I wasn't aware of that until the consultancy finished, but my boss at the time told me, well, we are looking for other projects. But if you want to continue to work, because we are not sure about your economical situation, it was good, actually. But the, she told me uh, we could actually do a reference for you. You are a good software developer, so we could do a reference letter for you and you could get uh, software development for sure. 
So she wrote a reference letter. And after that, she contacted like these uh, people from the IT sector in Guatemala. And uh, my second job was actually as an enterprise developer in another company. Uh, you know, my boss at the time, he spent a lot of years doing IT and telecom work. Mm -hmm. And he was like starting his consultancy company. So he had like this idea in which people will be using applications at their phones. And he did like this partnership with BlackBerry. Mm -hmm. So we, the, that company was the first BlackBerry representative, representative here in Guatemala. Mm -hmm. And that's when I went into Java micro edition. So I did a, like for two or three years, Java micro edition development. Mm -hmm. And when I went to that work, uh, you know, I started knowing a lot of Java. So I really enjoyed doing applications for BlackBerry because it was a thing with Java micro edition. It was a more capable Java micro edition, let's, let's say, if compared to, you know, other, other phones. But I started to work a lot in the enterprise sector. So I actually did a lot of backend work now with Glassfish because Glassfish was starting to to be popular here in Guatemala. Uh, I must say that Glassfish is still popular in Guatemala, pretty popular. Mm -hmm. And we started doing Java microedition applications with Glassfish. So that's when I became in love with Java Java Enterprise Edition. <laughs> I really enjoyed being, doing software development in, in that platform. Uh, interesting. Uh, which uh, This was Java E6 or 7 already, right? I guess. Yeah, it was Java E6. Six. Okay. When when was it? Which year, roughly? It was 2011, 2012, in which okay. I decided that. What happened uh, then? I, took, I mean, uh, then BlackBerry was no no more that popular. I would say after that. So what happened then? Yeah. <laughs> no, the thing is, uh, you know, BlackBerry was popular in 2010 when I started. Yeah, exactly. And we started like this, like this warehouse and delivery mm -hmm. applications. But I recall that my uh, my boss went to a conference in San Francisco. And when he, when he came back to Guatemala, he said, we actually have to regrow all of our applications because, uh, you know, uh, something is about to change because he attended the Apple conference. Oh. So when he went to the Apple conference, he said, the iPhone will be a thing. And what I learned in the conference is that Google is also doing a thing with the smartphones. So we'll be probably doing a lot in the mobile space in the following years. But uh, Java micro edition is no more. That was his vision, and he was actually right about it because uh, when Android started to to came up to the market, he actually went back to the U.S. and bought a lot of phones for us. And he said, "Well, we will be betting on Android, and if you already know Java, uh, you could do it on Android." And so we started with with Android at that time. So for that years. I was a mobile developer until 2012, which I took a very different path in life. <laughs> so uh, after that, you still are still developer, right? Or from 2012? No, the thing with 2012 is that uh, I wanted to do a different thing because, you know, I was really young when I finished college. I finished college at 21. Mm -hmm. So I was young. And uh, like people, I met people that actually do uh, masters or PhDs outside Guatemala, um, despite having difficulties in order to to find work here in Guatemala. They spoke a lot uh, why you should go and study abroad. 
So I had like this intention in order to study abroad. And that's where I decided to go to Brazil because Brazil was uh, a powerful country. It's still a powerful country, you know, but, you know, Brazil had like this opportunity window in which they did a lot of great things in software, in technology, yeah. in that that time, uh, at that time. So I... I applied for many scholarships and I actually got a scholarship to live in Brazil and do research works there. So I lived from 2012 to 2014 in, in Brazil. That's that's why you always see me with the Brazilian guys because I speak Portuguese with them. I, I, I try to speak with them in order to not forget the, the Portuguese. Ah, okay. So um, so you spent some time in Brazil and you also program Java, of course. I mean, you, you have to, right? Hey, well, actually, I didn't... These, Java at that time because I was part of a uh, you know security research group ah, and this so security hacker. research group yeah this security research group was doing was trying to do something with machine learning so Apache Apache Spark and Hadoop were starting and at that time uh, at least Spark had a lot of code in Scala mm -hmm. so I went with my Java background and I spent like two years doing research with Scala and, well, and you enjoyed Java, Scala course. actually so I'm really curious because uh, so what was your opinion about Scala well, now seriously well you know uh, <laughs> this kind of technology have like this hype and at the yeah. time Java wasn't a thing. So as many of the people, those know with Kotlin, that they say, well, Kotlin is killing Java. I was actually thinking that the Scala will kill Java eventually, which didn't happen. Yeah. And actually, I think was the right thing to do and the right thing to think at that time. But I really enjoyed the Scala. But with the, with the years, uh, Scala became really complex. And if you are not a full-time Scala developer, at least that, that's my opinion, you will be having like this hard time in order to read the Scala code because yeah. you know I have like this opinion that the uh, code, uh, the source code is actually a way to speak between developers. Exactly. And if you speak clearly with uh, Java code, and if you if you do it with the Scala code, the other persons in the room have to be very capable of doing functional programming in order to understand Scala code, which not happens too often, at least not in my region or my projects, which uh, mm -hmm. I've not seen so many Scala projects since then. Yeah, what what I didn't like about Scala is first, uh, it's getting better, but you know, the compilation was too slow for me. And the second thing is uh, what I do in Java, if I forgot JavaDuck or whatever, I click on the class and look at the source code and uh, I know what's going on. I tried to do with Scala and had no idea what's going on, right? And then I asked someone at the conference whether someone can explain me and, and did and, and did, couldn't find you know enough developers who also understood, you know, the source code. And then I asked again and then, then they made the distinction between library developers and application developers and I say, Okay, then it's not for me. I mean why what's what's going on here? You know, the and um Okay, so you were a Java developer, uh, Scala developer for two years, right? Yeah. And then yeah, what happened? So, so you came back I to was... Java. To, 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 you, back in 2015, you moved back to Guatemala and to Java, right? 
Yeah, the thing with I moved back to Guatemala is that I wasn't sure of wanted to be a researcher and professor. I am actually a college professor nowadays, oh, which is ironic. Too. Interesting. But yeah, at the time, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do a PhD because, you know, in Guatemala, you basically need a master or experience to be college professor. But, okay. uh, you know, in Brazil, Chile, Mexico, you actually need a PhD. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't sure about it. So I came back to Guatemala. And when I came back to Guatemala, I spoke with some guys in the IT industry because I wasn't sure if I will be spending a lot of months in Guatemala or I will be going back again to study abroad. But when I came back to Guatemala, uh, a friend of mine told me, uh, hey, I know you like a lot of Java. Uh, people is doing interesting things in software development. Why, why we don't do something interesting? Let's do a consultancy work. If uh, in the meantime, if you decide to go abroad again, and that was seven years ago. (laughs) So when I came back to Guatemala, (laughs) I started like work as contractor. And with the time I started to work as contractor, after that, we founded the company. And since then, I've been a Java developer. I came back to Java because, uh, you know, Despite liking a lot Scala, Java 8 was starting to take shape. Mm -hmm. So Java will be becoming functional eventually. And besides that, uh, uh, the decision of the professor or the director of the computer science degrees actually impacted a lot in the Guatemalan market. So I think that nowadays, if you want to find a good software developer here in Guatemala, you will be betting on Java developers or at least JavaScript developers. So when we decided which will be our technology stack, it was like pretty clear that in order to find the human resources, the capital to do it and to do it, you know, like this balance between economy and technical uh, features, uh, Java was the right decision. And actually it was the decision that we took. And uh, well, we... We actually have seven years in the market, so it was it was the decision that made us to survive and thrive in here in, in Guatemala. Yes, actually, great. And um, so, so you, uh, you, which projects you worked on? Enterprise projects again? So, yeah, mostly enterprise projects because when I came back to Guatemala, I actually worked in a lot of you know applications. Um, there is a particular market in IT which here in Guatemala is. It's called aggregators. I'm not sure if that's the right name in, in other countries, but these aggregators create like SMS promotions in which you receive a message in which find you the love of your life mm-hmm. or bet on the game of life. And most of these aggregators, uh, they work also with Java. So we started to do a lot of consultancy work for them, but the SMS market will be eventually dying. So when we foresaw that, that the SMS wasn't a thing anymore, they started to launch promotional uh, applications for Android. So we started like doing betting applications for phone or betting applications on the market that people downloaded and played a lot, a little bit with this kind of aggregators. And with that, we entered in the enterprise sector in Guatemala because one thing is to know Java and a whole different thing is to actually be able to provide services with the guarantees that all of these have to have in order to be considered at least by a banking, by a bank, mm-hmm. by a telecommunications area. But uh, that's where we started. We started with 
for phone applications for Android, after that for phone applications for iOS. And when people saw the results of our applications, we went back to the to the backend and enterprise uh, with, with job. What you did in the backend? Which technologies you used? Well, back then and now, uh, we mostly focused on Jakarta E and Java E and mm-hmm. eventually MicroProfile. The decision was because when these boot camps were actually based on Java E, Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this bootcamp uh, people actually became professors in another universities, professors oh, in okay. their own bootcamps. Mm-hmm. So the Java E base stack disseminated a lot in the country. And mm-hmm. nowadays, I think Spring, uh, Spring and Springwood is actually popular too in Central America. But Java E was pretty popular. So we decided, well, if we want to find Java developers ready for the market, we have to bet on Java E. And this was actually the the right bet because, uh, you know, the thing with Java E, and that's really my opinion, is that once you get what's the point of being a standards base, you actually have like this capability to do a lot of evolution. So when we started Java E7 was a thing, we have lived the transition between Java E7, Java E8, Java E9, Jakarta, MicroProfile. And for our needs, uh, Java E was actually, is actually pretty good because we have like this opportunity to have projects with one implementation. One client requires the Red Hat base stack, or a client said, oh, no, 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 we work with Glassfish. Another other say, well, we are Oracle base, mm-hmm. and Java E for consultancy makes a lot of sense for that because we could cover the whole spectrum of the Java enterprise sector with that. Yeah, I'm also a consultant. For me, made also a. a, 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 a Great sense because uh, I didn't have to know to learn all the application servers. I ju- actually only learned J- Jakarta, Java or J2E back then and was able to, to cover lots of implementations, uh, which, uh, you know, I yeah, only had to to learn the uh, diffs between the b- between the vendors. So I actually didn't know about that, that you are also a Jakarta and MicroProfile guy. I had no idea about that. Uh, interesting. And uh, you're still doing, um, but now you're a professor, right? So you you stopped uh, then d- developing, and then and when you started to teach, or w- how you became a professor? No, well, the thing is that in Guatemala, most of the college professors are actually lecturers, or the name I think the literal translation is practitioners, in okay. which you are actually in the industry. And they gave you like this opportunity of, of being a part-time professor or okay. just a lecturer in order. So I'm mm-hmm. actually a lecturer. I think that's the right translation. So I started to being a professor because, uh, you know, one condition of my scholarship was to come back to my country and help okay. do something, you know, because they basically gave you a whole degree for free. They covered it like transportation costs, housing, the okay. actual cost of living in Brazil. So it was okay. actually a pretty good opportunity. But the condition was, please come back to your country. You have to do something for your society. Mm-hmm. So ideally, if you go to a college and be a professor, that would be the right way to pay the, your scholarship. Mm-hmm. I was required to be a lecturer at least for, for two years. Mm-hmm. And I started being a lecturer and I never stopped basically. Okay. So I've been a lecturer at the university since 2014, 2015. Okay. And that's why and, I'm and so still, still programming with MicroProfile in Jakarta? Yeah. The thing is that nowadays I'm mostly a software architect, you know, this fancy title that okay. everybody uses. 
Now, the thing is that uh, at some point I have to grow because, uh, you know, I have to teach the people in order to, to be good at something. So I found a partner in, in the business. He's basically in charge of all the administration stuff, uh, the economy stuff and that. And I am actually most like a tech lead. Uh, so okay. nowadays I'm basically preparing architectures, scaffolds, archetypes, training teams here in Guatemala and mm-hmm. uh, leads to other countries here in Central America and Latin America. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I actually like to code and uh, I still code a lot. So I'm not creating the whole systems, but uh, yeah, from no, time to time. I, anymore, so, but yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I still work as, as a tech lead. So that's why I got mm, very interested in Java user groups. So when I came back to Guatemala, we restarted the Java user group in order to create this ecosystem. And you know, actually, at least as far as I know, the Java user group in Guatemala is the oldest user group in general that's still alive in the country. Oh, great. And, yeah, and I see and behind I think you the Duke biggest... Choice Award. The Duke Choice Award. Uh, yeah. yeah. How you got it? For what you got the Duke Choice Award? Okay, the thing is that when I came back to Guatemala, uh, you know, I had like this opportunity of receiving a lot of options in my life. Uh, Options being opportunities to study, opportunities to learn English. Mm -hmm. But that's not, that is not the reality of the majority of people here. So we decided that, uh, you know, like a way to a hobby, like a way to spend our, our weekends. We did like this bootcamp series. It all started like, well, let's do a Java bootcamp. Mm-hmm. And after that, we did another bootcamp in another college. Boom. Well, at, I think that after the sixth or seventh presentation, it was a thing we are doing a Java tour in Guatemala. So we did like this, uh, project with some colleges here in Guatemala in which said, here, we are the Java user group of Guatemala. We are professionals with different backgrounds. There is people that has been developing Java since, you know, the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And we want to do something for society. Well, we want to teach Java to everything, to mm-hmm. everyone that want to learn it. And we did like this bootcamp series. So we created uh, basic training material for Java, which you could actually deliver, or you could contact us to us in order to say, hey, I want to, I want the Java tour here in Guatemala, which we named the Dux Adventures. Because, you know, my first Java one was at 2014, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I my first dream was to have a, a Duke plush. Mm-hmm. So... In each of these presentations over Guatemala, you know, Guatemala is a very beautiful country. You have volcanoes, you have rivers, you have like these different areas and weathers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we carry out the, the plush and we took pictures. Oh, here, the Guatemala tour is oh, okay. here in this region of the country. The okay. Guatemala tour here is at the, at the mountains. We did a, we actually did it for a year and a half, maybe. But we created like this Java scene in Guatemala because before that Java wasn't so powerful, at least what is nowadays. And that's where I got it. So I recall that Bruno, Bruno Sosa, you know, you know it. Everybody knows Bruno. I met him in Brazil because I went to a conference of him in Brazil and we spoke a little bit and we followed each other on, 
I think it was Facebook. I'm not sure it was Twitter or Facebook, but Bruno wrote me, Hey man, what's the thing uh, that are you doing? Or why do you have a uh, Duke plush everywhere in your country? Mm -hmm. So I explained to him, well, Bruno, we are doing like this bootcamp series in Guatemala. We are trying to give opportunity to the people because, you know, despite being a powerful IT country compared to other countries, we have still lagging behind a lot in software engineering, mathematics mm -hmm. and whatever. And we did it for fun. And he said, well, that's Duke's choice material, man. And I was like, I don't know, man. We are doing this for fun. It is a project. We have like mm -hmm. a university sponsor and, and we are doing it for fun. But I'm not sure if that's Duke's choice of our material. And he told me, well, you know, here, take this form, fill out the things and just wait. I think it's Duke's choice material, but, you know, just try it. And in the end, we got the two choice in the educational sector. So we were a educational project and we won it in 2016. Yeah, well deserved, I would say. Yeah, and this is how it should be, right? And and uh, yeah, Bruno is great. So we had already two episodes with Bruno on AXFM podcast. So uh, yeah, great guy with the Brazilian flag. You need, you know, the the Guatemalan flag on your back, like Bruno. You know, this will, will be your thing. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> I, okay. I will carry out in the. Hopefully in the next Java conference, which mm -hmm. I could attend. <laughs> so uh, do you have now your own company, what I understood, right? Or uh, Yeah. What's the name of the yeah, company? Yeah, no, it isn't running. The company is it's actually pretty regional, but the name is Navenik, which Navenik. is a combined set of words of knowledge and cloud. So it's knowledge in the cloud, but it's in a Mayan translation. So Mayan. we were actually like, okay. yeah. Because, you know, uh, in Guatemala, we have like 23, 24, I'm not sure, different uh, regional languages. Mm -hmm. So people here have like this Proto-Mayan language in which 23 different languages derive all over the country. Uh -huh. But we are actually a small country. Mm -hmm. So we are actually smaller than Uruguay, I guess. Mm -hmm. But we have like this diversity and we appreciate a lot. Uh, you will find a lot of... Mayan reference, you know, culture or the publicity, the marketing. So we decided we are not so creative. So we let's just combine some Mayan words and see if some of these words work. And they actually work it. So that's how we got our name. We combined it knowledge and clothes. And that makes sense for us. In the Thank end, you. people always actually ask us, hey, what the name means? But everybody likes it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, I think it was. Actually, um, what I also like, you know, the reference to Mayan language. So, um, so Maya is like, uh, I don't know. I was also, you know, as a um, teenager, very curious about the Mayan culture and whatever. So it was like a little bit, you know, mysterious uh, thing. And um, and uh, which part of so cloud? So what are you doing? So this is like enterprise project in the clouds, and which clouds are you covering? So AWS or private clouds or what? No, the thing is that we are mostly nowadays we have three lines of work because we are good at software. We are not so good at our creative products, so we are basically consultants. Yeah. But the thing uh, we work the most, I think it is, uh, nowadays is DevOps, mostly doing migrations from traditional Java to cloud native Java. Uh, we work, you know, a whole range of clouds. I know that mostly here in Guatemala, the most popular clouds are AWS and Azure, but we work, we work also with Oracle Cloud. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's our three strongest cloud. But nowadays we do a lot of on-premise work too, because you know I'm not sure if that's the that's the situation in other countries. But in Guatemala, 
many of the government institutions, they have to actually run on premises still. They are yeah. creating like their private clouds, but still, still on premise. So nowadays we are doing a lot of cloud native Java uh, on premise. And open Kubernetes implementation. Uh, open shift, I guess, right? Yeah, we do mostly OpenShift and Kubernetes vanilla, but you know it's uh, it's an interesting part of the consultancy work because you are actually learning new things. You know, for instance, this year I actually spent a lot of time doing private clothes for institutional governments here in Guatemala. Mm -hmm. After that, we did like these trainings. They have like this whole backending uh, traditional glassfish deployment, and they want to scale because they have the need to do it. So they we are you know, empowering these institutional uh, organizations to go to different Java micro frameworks, like mostly Quarkus, Payara Micro. We do a lot of Payara Micro too. So it is really fun, you know. I am, okay. I actually enjoy my work doing that. Yeah, um, I really like OpenShift, actually. So OpenShift is a really convenient flavor of Kubernetes. And regarding Payara Micro and Glassfish, are you actually aware of Payara Cloud? Yeah, we are we are not into the Payara Cloud thing because you know at least my impression is that today is still a closed uh, closed cloud because you have to got like the invitation or yeah, yeah. I think it's, it is in beta. Yeah, but we are we are very very interested in what in we will be doing Payara in the next months. So I am as, I'm also a huge Payara fan. I actually had like this opportunity to meet the Payara guys. We sold a little bit of support of Payara here from them to Guatemalan institutions. So Payara is a thing here, mm -hmm. you know. Okay. And um, you mentioned, you know, the migrations um, that, uh, your, in your opinion, Java E was really good for consultancy and migrations. This was also my opinion. So, um, so no projects were which I uh, <coughs> supported. I was think Java E5 timeframe. So what I did a lot of migration from J214 to Java E5, and then you can simplify a lot because you know then uh, we got annotations and we you could delete all the old deployment descriptors. But the but the but the cool story is this Java E5 came out. I would say 2005, 2006, something around that, and uh, back the code to now. Is almost you know the same. So you could delete maybe an interface, and uh, we got at inject. So the migration was pretty smooth. And now it comes. So if you go to AWS, you can uh, take Quarkus. You mentioned Quarkus, and uh, package. You know, if you're a little bit lucky, the old application is AWS Lambda. So what we have in some projects, we actually picking the old code and shipping this as serverless AWS Lambda, or go to AWS uh, Fargate or um, Azure App Service, you mentioned Azure or uh, Azure uh, Azure Functions, but uh, this is the the same code. This is the crazy stuff, you know. You can yeah. you can go from you know old, uh, really fifteen years old code base, and with a little tweaks, you know, make uh, the cutting edge um, uh, Lambda serverless function. And 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 the next thing is, if you pick Quarkus and run it as Lambda on JVM. It even runs faster than uh, JavaScript or Python, so you can even you know save money with uh, with the old technology, which is which is great, right? Yeah, you know the thing is that uh, when I do this kind of migrations, most of the companies that we support are actually this kind of situation. I yep. recall uh, doing support for a company that has presence in all over Central America. And they were like doing this migration from Glassfish and they were doing from Glassfish to OpenShift. And I recall the training because that training was pretty 
special for them. When I'd say, well, what's your actual knowledge? And they have like this huge experience in Java E7 and they wanted to go to Spring. I have nothing against Spring. I really also like Spring too, mm-hmm. but I told them, you know, you could actually do microservices too with Jakarta EE, and mm-hmm. we actually have a lot of implementations. So we spent like a month or month and a half uh, doing just proofs of concepts mm-hmm. on what they will have to do in order to do the cloud native migration. But the impression in the faces of the people when we they were able to do microservices with their actual knowledge was huge. That was like three years ago, I guess. Yeah, it was three years ago. And nowadays they are running all over Quarkus and Helidon and Fajara Micro. And the knowledge they have, and they have been developing a lot in Java, they actually took advantage of it in order to be productive and to do a successful migration. And it was pretty cool because when you see actually the, the actual product in which they are nowadays attending all over Central America with that application that they migrated many of the codes they had in the early Java IE 7, it was actually pretty, pretty successful, a pretty successful project. Yeah, actually recently um, someone asked me now to help with the migration from Payara to Quarkus and uh, to the cloud. So there was on-premise to the cloud deployment. And I said, okay, why would you like to migrate? I mean, if it runs fun, uh, fine on, on Payara, um, you will maybe you know save a few megs of RAM, but uh, it, it will cost you about the same, roughly the same. And they said, okay, good point. And after proof of concept, it just runs happily as Payara on AWS Fargate without any problems. So, um, I mean, you don't have to contain as a container. Sure, Quarkus will be a little bit smaller, but you shouldn't forget that the applications also have caches, and it's not about the you know the overhead; it's just about you know the entire application, and this is uh, not 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 a huge thing. So it was a nice chat with you, and um, if you like, I would like to reinvite you back, and if you like, we could talk about your Mayan projects, right? So uh, it's, it seems like you're doing exactly the same what I, what I am doing. So it was uh, really interesting to see, and um, we could speak about you no know, cloud migration or whatever like. Just would be a fun conversation, I would say. Yeah, I think, I think, you know, I am a huge fan of your podcast because when I started in Java IE, you actually have a lot of resources in Java IE back then. So mm-hmm. it was really an honor to be here now. Oh, really? Uh, I didn't do that. Like, I, I, you actually, um, you invited me to a conference or you are part of the conference and uh, then I pinged you. So interesting because I saw you uh, at Java One, I think, and I was okay. Um, I'm really curious what you are doing. And then I invited you here, and I had no idea that you are actually doing Jakarta in MicroProfiles, which is great. Yeah, you know the thing is, uh, we have like the biggest conference in Central America, so you are more than welcome the, the next year probably. So, so I, I, I was be, actually there online, fun. right? I was. Uh, this was. Yeah, the, you were offline. Yeah, uh, online. Yeah, you uh, were uh, the previous the, year, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Um, perfect. Yeah, sure. Uh, always, you know, online works well uh, because there is no 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 time, you know, to travel. Uh, I don't have to spend any time to travel. I'm also a consultant, as you, a lot to do, but uh, yeah, perfect. So thank you, and um, if you like, I will re-invite you back. Okay, thank you, Adam, for sure. I, I, and uh, I forgot again. about that. Where can people find you? What is your Twitter account? What is the name of the company? And so forth. Now you have to promote yourself. It's not that easy, you know. Okay, uh, my Twitter is pretty easy. It's Tukstore, 
like Tux, Tux, Tux the Penguin and, ah, okay. and Thor like Victor. That's okay. the whole history of my, my nickname. My nickname is everywhere, but it's the combination of Tux because I like it a lot, Linux too. Yeah. And the last part of my name. So if you Google Tuxter, I will be there probably okay. doing something in the Java space. <laughs> and your company name again? Okay, my company is Nabinik. Uh, you could Google us too, and we are mostly focused on Latin America, especially Mexico and Central America. But we have like a lot of things, to, interesting things and histories to to help everybody in in the Java space. And uh, how many employees do you have roughly? Roughly, I think we are a small company. We have like fifteen employees. That's my okay. Last count. My fifteen is a. I mean, this is how uh, this is. I think Android started with five developers or something, right? So you can achieve a lot. Yeah, yeah. We do a lot of work nowadays, but we are small, but we are very focused and specialized in which what we do. So. Yeah, cool. Thank you. It.